0: Gateway, happy Sunday, so good to be here with you. Uh, Just a a couple of things before we step into this new series, The Emotionally Healthy Church. Uh, If you have been with us here for the past few weeks, we just wrapped up a series called As It Is, which is really about who we want to be as a church and where we want to go. It's built out of this line from Jesus' words and the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so really our our heart's ambition, if this is your first time here with us, is to be a community following Jesus, here in Des Moines, so it might actually be here in Des Moines as it is in heaven, and so in that series, we attend to things like pursuing the presence of Jesus of being formed into his image and joining him in renewal and there's some irony here as we're starting a new series because uh, in in many respects, it feels kind of like an extension of that and 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 I would love to be able to say that that was done intentionally. I think more <laughs> is just a gift that I'm going to receive. Uh, so really, this this first teaching, uh, its title is "Healing Pain." Uh, just as maybe a PSA of sorts for the next number of weeks, really up until August, Lord willing, we're going to talk about emotional health. And I, I uh, as we kind of get into this teaching, I have a confession. Uh, what we're entering into today it makes me nervous uh, because today these. Set of teachings that we're gonna kind of frame out, our invitations that can, if we're willing, help us move toward emotional health, and that that is uh, where my nerves start to come in because I, I'm aware that when pastors or churches start talking about things like emotional health, there can often be a moment of suspicion. It, it it's it's a moment where we we go, ooh, I I. I don't know about this. There's some uncertainty that we feel within ourselves, and I want to pay us. I want us to pay attention to that for just a moment here before we we get into it all. Because if you feel some of that internal distress, or even like that anxiety, or perhaps even some fear about even just talking about emotional health, and you're asking questions like, why would a church, why would my church, why would any church delve into emotional health? Like just keep the main thing, the main thing, pastor. Let's just open up the Bible. Well, um, to get at this, like if, if that's what you're feeling, just two things. Uh, First, some history, and then we will get to the Bible, because emotional health is itself attended to by the person in whom all of the scriptures find their purpose, namely Jesus of Nazareth. And so first, some history. Uh, For the bulk of church history, really, like, up until about 200 years ago, the leaders of the church envisioned their life as a life together. It was a life uh, that was given over for the good of others in a holistic way. And what I mean by that is that the church would be a a people, uh, women, children, men gathered together in a place following the way of Jesus. In other words, they're moving toward where they are and heading toward love. Jesus is the ambition, the, the one who is the full embodiment of love. And more specifically, then leadership within that local church context, it, it attended to people as whole people moving toward wholeness. And if that sounds kind of like, ooh, to you, just stay with me here. We'll, we'll, we'll get to this. that The scriptures do attend to this. And this is, this is actually a significant note because so often talking about attending to whole people and moving toward wholeness in Jesus, that does feel disconnected from the Bible, and yet it is intensely biblical. See, in the biblical imagination, uh, who we are matters. And in other words, like, all of you matters. That is, uh, the physical, the spiritual, the intellectual, the social, and the emotional, all of those aspects matter. And sadly, I. I I think we've been sold a bill of goods that it is our spiritual or our intellectual aspect that really matters the most. And so often those two things go hand in hand because we treat a spiritual thing like an intellectual exercise. And yet the vision that the scriptures give us is one that's integrated. And what we've done is we've separated those things. We've separated what God has joined together in that. And we've ranked them when really these are aspects, not parts, but aspects of the whole. And so we have cultures in in churchianity that talk about the saving of souls, and we think about the soul as something that's disembodied, a thing that goes off to another place. And when the Bible talks about soul, it's often talking about your life. It's it's a physical, it's an embodied thing. So many soul, like in the Hebrew Bible, which is the language that the Old Testament was originally written in, that word soul is nephesh, and it can talk about your neck. It's, it's this physical thing where your breath comes in and out. It's like this part that speaks of the whole. So so it's this significant portion. And, and what's important is that you do not simply possess a soul that's in need of saving and cultivating. Now, in the, in the Bible's mind, you are, are a soul that is in need of cultivating. And on the opening pages of the Bible, we, we witness this beautiful act where uh, the Spirit of God is breathing life and speaking life into all creation. And there's, um, there's life in the seas and the skies and on the land. And then at the pinnacle of creation, something quite striking occurs. And again, in the Hebrew, what's going on is this is this kind of rhyme scheme that's going on. The Spirit of God, the breath of God, breathes over the dirt. And the dirt there in the Hebrew is Adama. Can you say that with me? Yeah, Adama. And out of the Adama comes Adam, humanity. Like that, that beautiful connection, dirt and divine breath, this living creature who bears God's image, who uniquely represents God's creative work for the flourishing of the world. And there we are, humanity, That this who are a soul distinct from the rest of creation because we uniquely represent God's creative work in the world. And, and so you've kind of fast-forward to the Jesus movement in the wake of the truly human one, Jesus, who shows us what it really is to abide, to stay with God and to be truly human. When that movement emerges, and then these communities begin to care for one another, can you guess how they care for one another? Yeah, they care for the whole person. In this new and expanding family of God, this beginning story, this Genesis story, It is the founding story of how we are to see ourselves as whole people moving toward wholeness. See, we we are a part of God's renewal, which means that we don't just do what God wants. No, God is actually doing renewal to us because renewal in God's mind is holistic and we are a part of that renewal commenting on how the church has cared and done this throughout history is uh, this the work of William A. Klepshin, and and specifically this work it's called Pastoral Care in Historical Perspective. I wouldn't recommend it for reading but I found it interesting (laughs) for this teaching and he outlines kind of like eight movements what he calls epochs and in the sixth and seventh movement of church history in his perspective he talks about a reformation and enlightenment And what he talks about is how the Reformation kind of plants the seeds of individualism. And this is kind of talking about the scriptures moving from the the papal authority of the church of the day and being disseminated into the hands of people like you and me. And those seeds of individualism, they found just the... A space to flourish in the soil of enlightenment, what we often know as the age of reason. You people like John Locke, who are just blowing people's minds and all those, basically all of those historical figures that you've long since forgotten about, that started dissecting different aspects of how we are and then giving intentional thought to them. See what, what happened in that season is that those things that were once viewed as whole were now separate disciplines. So things like psychology and spirituality and biblical theology, they're no longer viewed together, but they're separated into sub-disciplines. And whereas they were previously held and like, attended to by a person called a curate the one who would literally care for the soul so often be a priest they're now in the hands of people who are being shaped by enlightenment ideologies and then just down the road just like a hundred years or so you get darwinian evolution where we are simply viewed as humanity is now viewed as animals with time and chance on our side so what, what what goes down is that we are parsed as people into these sub-disciplines, and then people are taken from these unique creatures that bear God's image to just creatures. And all of a sudden now, the soul is disconnected. It's broken apart. See, in in the Enlightenment and beyond, the, the soul was essentially farmed out to people who had no vision for the soul. And in turn, they could never really treat humanity as the holistic creatures that we are. See, it makes sense from a historical perspective that suspicion rises in our hearts when we start talking about emotional health, about reintegrating what has been historically separated. It makes perfect sense. And and for so long, if your experience in the church is anything like mine, that that prevailing sentiment is that we continue this, that we dismiss and distrust and maybe even discount and disregard altogether our emotions. Like when it comes to feeling or fact, we choose fact. And, And we don't always trust our feelings, certainly, but do we disregard them? Well, Let's turn to the Bible and see what the scriptures have to say about this, because that indeed is our place of authority. So uh, just listen to a few of these gospel passages, and this is Jesus himself, uh, the truly human one. In Mark 6, and we're going to start in Mark and kind of end in Mark, but uh, Mark 6, uh, Jesus' disciples come to him after kind of a robust season of ministry, and we read this in Mark six thirty. the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then... Because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. Verse 32, So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, so the picture is that Jesus gets in a boat to go and be alone with his people. People. But other people see where Jesus is going and they're like, well, we we can get there before they're going there. And so they run and when Jesus sees them, when he lands there and he saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And we'll come back around to Mark in a moment. But you see, Jesus doesn't start here. We can actually turn over to the gospel according to Luke. You, You see this in Luke 7. Soon afterward, Jesus went down to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. It was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. And just pause right there at the end of verse 12. See, immediately this moment is a social justice moment. It's a almost like what we would call a benevolence moment, because a widow is utterly dependent on her family for care. And yet here what we notice is that her only son is now deceased. She is utterly destitute. And look what we see picking up in verse 13 when the Lord, which is how Luke talks about Jesus, which is um, pretty legit. So when the Lord saw her, check this out, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. It's a picture of of empathy and it doesn't stop there you just turn the page and go over to luke 10 and you see this at that time now this is after jesus has sent out the 72 disciples it's like he's talking about he saw satan fall from heaven it's like this really dope scene all at that time verse 21 jesus full of joy through the holy spirit said i praise you father lord of heaven and earth and it goes on see in this scene jesus is responding Bonding to the goodness of God's provision, and he just like breaks out into song. But you know, it's not always the warm and fuzzies for Jesus. If you go over just another page, you could read this in Luke 12. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo. And what constraint, or you could Translate that distress. What distress I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring priests on earth? No, I tell you, but division. This is something that challenges our perception of Jesus. And yet notice, he's talking about this distress that he's under, and he couples that with this language of baptism. The idea here is the cross. It's the waters of suffering that he's going to pass through, the anxiety of impending pain. And it gets even more sobering with Jesus. And you say, how can it get more sobering than that? Well, turn over again. You go with me to uh, the gospel according to John chapter 2. And John uniquely places this scene at the beginning almost as a way to say this is what Jesus is about. This is who he is. John chapter 2, picking up in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Pause right there. This is not an abnormal practice. See, to go to Passover, people—this is one of the great pilgrimage festivals—and so people would travel from all around the region, and they would come. And it's, you know, difficult to like travel with lammy and make sure that lammy is spotless when you get from the Galilee down to Jerusalem and Judea. It's like so. What they would do is they would have animals from things like goats and sheep, and all the way for the poor to doves. The challenge here is where they're selling these things. You notice it is in the courts of the temple. These are likely the outer courts of the temple. In the outer courts of the temple, this is the place that are reserved for non-Jewish people. This is the Gentiles. These are God-fearing Gentiles and their space of worship has all of the sudden been hijacked and perverted and turned into a market. And this is what Jesus does in verse 15. Check this out. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the court, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. See, this is the Jesus that I'm like, that makes sense to me. I I, I like feel what you're feeling, Jesus. Well, I'm not feeling zeal for the Father's house. That's an aside. But like the the raw visceral expression, like in your body stuff. Like I'm like, I get that. And though I relate to that, that's not the Jesus that's relayed to me. Like you're you're not going to see a VeggieTales skit of this. This is not going to be like one of those flannel board moments. If if you know what a flannel board is, you know I didn't grow up in the church, but I've I've heard about these flannel graph things. Flannel board, flannel graph. I don't know. You tell me later. Send me an email. But you're not essentially you're not going to see this scene displayed like Jesus with a cord whipping the like. No, that's we don't know what to do with this. You see, this list could go on. You could go right on over to John chapter eleven, and you could see Jesus's love for his friend Lazarus, how he weeps. You could see his loyalty and friendship and so much more. The point is Jesus is an emotional being. And Jesus is emotional because Jesus is human. In fact, he is the truly human one. And to be human is to feel. Feel. Like Jesus experienced the full breadth and depth of human emotions. The, the realities, the things we enjoy, the things we loathe, he experienced all of them. So the question really is, what do we do with these emotions? If we look around our culture, kind of look outside our little tribes and churchianity and all that, and we'll attend to that in a moment, but if we look to the broader culture, do we do like what's so popular, like kind of a pop Buddhism? where we call desire and emotionalism uh, the root of suffering and therefore we detach and we kind of rise above. You'd be surprised how popular this is. Just keep going. Just carry on. Keep calm. Carry on. Is that what we do? Or maybe we we go the way of of secularism. We just acknowledge suffering and submit there's nothing we can do because this is the way that it is. No, just, man, we're pretty much incapable of doing anything about the suffering in the world, so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Just escape to the now and distract ourselves. So is that what we do? Do Do we detach? Do we distract? Maybe there's another way. Maybe we look inside of our culture and we look into the culture of evangelicalism. And just to to, to be clear on this, when I talk about evangelicalism, I don't have like a person or a people in mind. I'm talking about a larger system. And when we look inside of that, when our emotions flare up, what do we do with them there? Do we just turn the worship music up a little bit louder? Do we participate in another service project? Do we pray some more? Do we go to multiple church gatherings on a weekend just to kind of like mask and cover and do all of that so so that at the end of it, we can preach a nice little sermon to our souls and soothe ourselves and essentially tell our emotions where to go. They can either get on board or get out. After all, the tomb is empty. The spirit is on the loose. The old has gone. The new has come. So why give any mind to the old? Just attend to the new. Well, There's a line from the book, uh, The Cry of Souls, that goes, ignoring our emotions is like turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. I think that what we really want is reality. I I think there's a lot of sincerity to that. A lot of honesty would be more appropriate. There's a lot of honesty when we say we want reality. But reality is also where it gets messy, isn't it? Because there is a time to tell your emotions to get in line. There there is a moment to say, I feel this, and yet I'm not going to follow that. There is a time for that. But what happens when you preach your nice little sermon to your emotions and your emotions basically give you the middle finger and then just carry on? What do you do with that? My guess is at that point, you tackle your emotions like the rest of the world. You medicate. Because at that point, you can't turn the music up any louder. Your schedule's already full. And we can get really good at this. We can get really, really adept at calling good things bad and bad things good. We can mask bad emotions with quote-unquote good emotions. Like we know as followers of Jesus that we ought to pursue joy. And and so if, if what we do is we get good at reframing would be the appropriate term. So we feel some anxiety and we like, I don't know, chant ourselves into contentedness or we feel kind of melancholy so we pursue joy. But there's there's something inherently toxic that comes in that masking because though we know joy is good, like Jesus says he wants our his joy in us so that our joy may be overflowing. Like this is a reality. Joy is a good thing. <laughs> But since we've never been walked into biblical joy, the fact that joy can coexist, that it can inhabit the same space as trials, man, we're like, well, it's one or the other. It's, it's, it's either this or that. And so in turn, we, we just define joy on our own terms. We say this bottle is joy. This meal is joy, this relationship is joy, this social experience is joy, this concert is joy, this you fill in the blank is joy. In the end, like we we can't avoid our emotions. We have to face them. There's this little book I read a lot to Griffin when he was smaller than he is now, and it's this little book called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. And perhaps you've, you've read it or if you, if you have no kids and this has no context, let me tell you about it. Like this, it's kind of an odd thing to think this dad and kids and they're going on a bear hunt and they have their little dog and they're saying, we're going on a big, on a bear hunt. What a beautiful day. I'm not scared. And then they encounter some sort of obstacle. Oh, tall grass, thick wavy grass. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We have to go through it. See, emotions come. And what do we do? We have to go through it. It's like we we see this. It's in our children's books that when obstacles come, sometimes we can't just bypass them. That's what I want to (laughs) do. I want to buy. I don't want to feel the hard things and yet can't go over them. Can't go under them. You got to go through them. See, the backbone of this little series that we're entering into is a book by uh, Pete Scazzaro called The Emotionally Healthy Church. You might have done stuff with Emotionally Healthy Spirituality or Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's kind of like this little cottage industry he has, (laughs) but uh, the OG is Emotionally Healthy Church. And the author has this line that kind of carries an invitation to us today, and the line goes like this. He says, it is impossible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while being emotionally immature. Maybe we read that again. It is impossible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while being emotionally immature. It's as though your emotional maturity is the ceiling at which the rest of your life flows upward. In other words, uh, to to quote Schizero at length, You can be a dynamic, gifted speaker for God in public and be an unloving spouse and parent at home. You can function as a church board member or a leader or pastor and be unteachable, insecure, and defensive. You can memorize entire books of the New Testament and still be unaware of your depression and anger, even displacing it onto others. You can fast and pray half a day a week for years as a spiritual discipline and constantly be critical of others, justifying it as discernment. This is like a, this is a heavy list. And I was wrestling, like, do we read all of it? Do we not? There's some, some more here that I think are, are good. So I just want to prepare you. I'm not thinking about you, the gateway church in mind. This is me just quoting him as an author, but if if it's anything, your experience is anything like mine, like some of this hits kind of heavy. You can lead hundreds of people in Christian ministry while driven by a deep personal need to compensate for a nagging sense of failure. You can pray for deliverance from the demonic realm when in reality you are simply avoiding conflict, repeating an unhealthy pattern of behavior traced back to the home in which you grew up. That one, um, in a number of weeks, we're going to do this little thing called a geneogram. We're going to be invited into it exploration of how our family shapes us schizero will later go on to say that pastoring is essentially reparenting people into the family of God that's been like a revolutionary thing for me to, to step into and I'm trying to figure out what the heck that means <laughs> as I am trying to be reparented into the family of God because we come we come from a place and that it's not like a blank slate when you're born no. The sins of your father and mother and grandfather and great-grandfather, they they dramatically imprint your life, but they don't have to set the trajectory for the rest of your life. There is a truth to that theology that the old is gone and the new has come. It's just that the old doesn't go away as quickly as we want. So we have to attend to it with the present comfort of the Spirit. But that's not where Scazero ends his list. He goes on to say... <laughs> You can be outwardly cooperative at church, but unconsciously try to undercut or defeat your supervisor by coming habitually late, constantly forgetting meetings, withdrawing, becoming apathetic, or ignoring the real issue behind why you are hurt and angry. In other words, it is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while emotionally immature. We need integration. All of those aspects, physical, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, social, we need all of it together because we need wholeness. And Jesus, the one who meets, the one that we meet in the pages of the Gospels, invites us into this. He invites us and then models how we deal with our emotions. And so to close, go back with me to Mark chapter 14 and we'll, we'll pick up in verse 32. And this is what we read. Jesus has just wrapped up uh, the, the, the Last Supper, and now he's going down, and he's going into the place of the wine press, the, the Valley of Gethsemane. It's, a, uh, it's an olive orchard, and, um, or the olive press. And so there they are, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible from you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I don't know if you noticed Jesus' words here, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. The sorrow that Jesus is experiencing in this moment is literally squeezing the life out of him. And he bears it all before the Father. You see... He's on his face and asking if this could just, if there's another way, the language of this, this cup. It's this Hebrew idiom for your lot in life. It's, uh, it's like, what is going to happen? And Jesus is saying, I want something entirely different. Notice Jesus doesn't detach or distract or deny. No, Jesus deals. And what does he do? He goes to the place of pain. And why? Like, why does Jesus go to the place of pain? Because Jesus is emotionally mature. You see, the place of pain is the place where healing can actually occur. It's the, it's, and then the place of healing is the place where we can, with God's help, then offer up the gift of who we are to the world. And maybe that sounds a little, like, naive or idealistic of, like, God, that's just not the way the world works. Why not? Who says the world has to work the way that it does? What's happened to our imaginations that they're so curtailed by the hurt and the pain of the world? Jesus is saying you can actually deal with your pain. And this is how. You go to the place of the pain. You stare it in the face because that is where healing is. And healing is where, with God's help, our place of healing becomes then a gift But when our healing becomes a gift, that also means our hurt has become a gift as well. It is renewed. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's right here in the place of pain. You see, God loves the world. And when his spirit breathed life into that dirt and creatures bearing his image came into the world, so too did God's means of loving that world, namely you and me. And through you and me and our gender and our stage of life and our relationship status or lack thereof and certainly our family of origin, God desires to give the gift in us to the world he loves. Like he wants to love through us. And in the end, like our emotional health, it's not about our happiness. It's about becoming people of love. That's why we're entering into this. It's not just a self-help session until we get to the summer or through summer. And I get it. Like, some of us withdraw when, when emotions are on the table because they're painful. Like, pain is not the place we really want to go. I understand. And sometimes those past pains, we didn't choose those. They were chosen for us but by a parent or a mentor, a sibling, a friend. They, they emotionally vomited on us. And we're still trying to deal with the stink of that. And part of how we deal now is by never letting what's on the inside get out. And we just push it down. So we're afraid of our emotions. and And we don't want to do to others what was done to us. But again, that's that's toxic. It, it's like like an apple. It's like an apple that's pristine on the outside. It has that wax and it just shimmers. But the moment you open it up, you cut it, you take a bite into it, it's mealy. It's it's bruised and on its way to rot. You just push those things down. It does not lead to flourishing. What if instead of detaching or distracting or denying, like we dealt with our emotions, what do you think would happen? What, what if we invited Jesus to accompany us into the place of pain? Just, I think about the implications that that would have on like our selfish ambition, on our entitlement, on our anger. Like when in the moment of temptation, instead of saying, oh, I need like deliverance or something, we just said, Jesus, here I am and we disclosed the feeling, the desire, the want to touch it, like I want to click on the thing and do the thing I know I ought not to do. I want that to mask this. What if we just let Jesus know? We invited him into that space. Even if we felt wrong about it in the past, even if we carry guilt and shame there, what if we just invited Jesus in? See, I think we actually see a pathway with Jesus to invite Jesus into those spaces. See, Jesus, he notices what's going on. He names it, and he attends to those things in a place of trust. See, Jesus, he just starts with this bold admission. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. There's no qualifications. There's no like pep talk to um, like he doesn't turn up the Christian music of his day and try and mask what's going on. He doesn't reframe it. He just bears his soul and he does so in trust. I don't know if you notice this, like in the face of the cross, this is Jesus flinching. He wants another way. He's like, God, if there's any way for your renewal to break out, that's not the cross. Let's do that. In this moment with all of its unsettling complexity, like it is Jesus attempting another way. There's no posturing, there's no filtering, there's no guilt over it. He just lays those things bare before the Father. And I was just wondering, like, could we do this? Could you do this? And if immediately you're like, no, 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 no. What's in the way? really what have you been saying about yourself what have you been saying about god that makes you say no i can't i I." are you saying he wouldn't accept you are you saying there's no way the father's love would make it to me if he if he actually knew how i felt about this person about what i did the other night if he knew if like everybody knew if if jesus knew what i was like at 3 a.m Could you lay your emotions bare before God? Our response to that question, if you're anything like me, is it's kind of scary, thus, the nerves of this whole time. (laughs) So, I just, the invitation is consider Jesus. Just consider him. He's not mastered by his emotions, he's not driven to and fro by them, he's not afraid of his emotions, he's not living his life according to them. He just lays them bare before the Father. It's like, how do you do this, Jesus? Well, like, how how do you say not my will, but your will be done? And the simple answer that's not so simple is trust. Jesus has entrusted himself into the loving care of God. Like, and in that place of trust, in a thick web of relational trust, what's on the inside has a way of coming out. And Lord willing, it, it comes out in healthy ways and not toxic ways. But the challenge for us is, is that we often just want to skip the emotions and get right to the trust and therefore get right to the healing. But the hurt, Jesus wants to attend to that. See, to, to, to go right to the place where we're like, not my will, but your will be done, ignores and dismisses and it, it even it does not honor that Jesus cares about your hurt, that he wants to heal it, that he wants to tend to it and love you through it so that it can be a gift given. All of the stuff that we experience in life, like God, he says, that can be a gift. I'm not saying that the abuses that occur by no means are God's will that's a that's a gross theology that does not reflect the character of God. But as evil is rampant and loose in the world, and as we have agency and freedom to love and to not love, evil exists. We do it to one another. And it's done to us. And God's saying, I wanna, I wanna heal that, I want to restore that, I want to renew that. See, to invite Jesus into our emotional pain, man, it is It's not easy, but it is possible. It's possible to start noticing these things. It's possible to start naming them, and it's possible to start attending to them, and it's going to take time. It's not like when we reach August or something, we're all gonna be emotionally healthy and therefore emotionally mature. Some of us will be a little further along. Some of us will resist and be a little further behind, but all of us, Lord willing, will be moving toward a place of emotional maturity, and thereby all of the aspects of our life will increase in maturity as well. Our capacity to be present to God and to one another will all increase. So this is the invitation, folks, to go to the place of pain, because the place of pain is the place of healing. And the place of healing is where God intends to offer the gift of who you and I are to the city of Des Moines, to our house, to our neighbors. So my prayer is simply this. Jesus, would you give us the courage to go to the place of pain with you? And we pray this in your loving name. Amen.